just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the show. My name is Johnny Ball. This is Speaking Influence for a little while longer anyway. So the show is going through a transitionary period and I will keep you posted about that. But probably around July time, we'll be relaunching the show in its new format with its new stronger focus on building influence and authority through podcasting. Now, we'll still be having lots of great guests and talking about a lot of the same kinds of topics with a much stronger focus. And I hope that if you are a business professional, that if you are already using podcasts as a, either as a host or a guest or in some other way, or you're thinking about doing that, that you will stay with us through this transitionary time because there'll be a lot of value for you in it. And also because if you have a personal brand business, then you definitely should be leveraging the power of podcasts in some way, shape or form. Now, Speaking Influence is the show where we dive into the world of influence and persuasion to help you build your professional authority and become a powerfully persuasive communicator. And along the way, hopefully learn some of the tips and tricks that are going to allow you to defend yourself against the tools of influence and persuasion being used against you. Now, today we're talking about one of the things that really, I think, helps us to become charismatic, super charismatic. It's a skill that when you master it will make you somebody that naturally people will always want to tune into and hear from you. You'll probably get invited to more parties and you'll be one of those people that the room will fall silent if you can master this skill. We're talking about storytelling and continuing on from our conversation with Sophie Wadsworth last week, we are going deeper into this, into the academic world of storytelling with my guest, Leon Conrad, who has been studying the forms of storytelling for years. He can tell us all about the different types of storytelling structures and how they are relevant to us, how we can use them in our professional lives, how we can solve problems with stories, and more besides. And Leon has an amazing book coming out, and it's called The Unknown Storyteller, and it's going to give you all of the structures of storytelling that you'll be able to learn and master and utilize to be, to be able to create your own stories on the spot and to be able to become an incredible storyteller and raconteur. So I hope you'll pay great attention for this episode and that you'll get as much out of it as I have. Now, now, I certainly felt a little bit out of my depth in this episode, certainly not coming from the world of academia so much myself, but much like when I had a show with the philosopher Donald Robertson on a while back, it's a masterclass from somebody who really knows what they're talking about. And having listened back to it now, I think I handled myself a bit better than I might have given myself initially credit for. So I hope that you will get a lot of value from the show and how you can apply storytelling more into your professional life and your business and become a more charismatic communicator. So I'll leave you now to enjoy the show. Welcome to Speaking Influence, the show that helps you to master the psychology and application of ethical influence and persuasion in life and business with persuasive presentations and podcasting coach, Johnny Ball. 
Well, welcome to the show. And today we are going to be talking a lot about storytelling. And I've really been looking forward to this conversation because we have some very detailed expertise with us on the show in the form of Leon Comrade. And we're going to be exploring stories in a way that I don't think we ever have on the show before. And I've been looking forward to this conversation. I hope you will get a lot from it too. Leon, welcome to the show. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you for having me here. It's great to be speaking to you. have been looking forward. We've had this plan for quite a long time. And I just want to start off by asking you what I ask all of my guests at the start of the show. As for who is somebody who you respect and admire for their influence and persuasion, what they've done with it? So one of the people I admire is not for their persuasive rhetoric or their influence on other people, but it's a very personal share. I want to reference George Spencer Brown, who was my mentor. He was an exceptional person who lived to the age of 94. I was lucky enough to know him in the last four years of his life. And uh, after the war, he joined the University of Oxford, where he worked with and met Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell at the time was working on Principia Mathematica. It was an attempt to argue that Anything you could do with language, you can put in algebraic shorthand. He wrote two huge books on it. Spencer Brown was involved in helping him edit the last book. And the project never really got off the ground. Did a lot of work. And the problem was that they were trying to say everything in language can be said in an algebraic formula. You can put it in a set, but language can't fit in its own set an old project fell down. What George Prince Brown said was, you're trying to look at one application of a calculus using another application of the calculus. You're not looking at the underlying calculus. And he went off and did just that. His work is really simple. Using six simple symbols, he was able to show the underlying workings of logic, of mathematics. He built an algebra out of that system, which has since been applied to cybernetics, to mathematics, and I've most recently applied it to logic and to storytelling. Personally, he was a great friend and he was a huge influence on me and my eventual ability to simplify my thinking. That's a, a really great example and it's had a very deep impact on yourself and your life as well so it's lovely to hear that and and very compelling to me myself and possibly a lot of listeners thinking oh we need to find out more about that person as well so i i love the example you gave let's follow on from that then this, this led you into your work and research on storytelling so what has that involved for you and what is the nature of storytelling that you've been researching? So I deal with stories. You may be familiar, as your listeners may be familiar, with works like Christopher Booker's Seven Types of Plot or Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, Monomyth. Yeah. And there are others out there. Vladimir Prop in Russia came up with 31 functions of the folktale. George Polity came up with a similar motif-based way of analysing what happens in stories. and when people analyze folk tales, they generally look at the events that happen in folk tales and say, well, there's a bear catching a fish. How many stories do we have with a bear catching a fish? 
let's categorize them all and see whether there are any links. People have tried to map the overarching shape of stories, the patterns that underlie the content. And there's a very amusing talk online for anyone who wants to, wants to follow it up by Kurt Vonnegut, where he draws very vague line graphs, plotting the general shape of a story. And other authors have gone into this in more detail. And it's a useful thing just to get a general view of when the energy in the story goes up, when it goes down. What I do is slightly different. I've gone in using Spencer Brown's methodology in much more detail. And I've mapped the energy that goes through the ebb and flow of story that makes story story. What I found in doing that is that the reason why we have different story structures, and I've identified 18 so far, there may be others, but those are the main ones I've found over 10 years of research, uh, is that different story structures emerge from different types of problems. And this happens spontaneously as part of what it is to be human. What, what does this mean for us then? Like how, how important is it for us to understand why stories work in this way or how they're structured? The, there are two things that are really important. First of all, that if you understand what the structure of the story is, irrespective of the content, and you, underline, you understand the link between the story structure and the problem it comes out with, you can say, right, I have this type of problem. I can use this structure to outline this. Because when you do that, you're thinking along the lines of your brain's natural way of thinking. These pathways are already laid. They emerge from us. And we've used them since we were kids. The, the thinking, the familiarity, and the ease of solving problems will just be so much easier, so much simpler. And uh, the second thing is that once you take content away, the whole approach to story becomes simpler. And you realize that many things that we don't think of as stories actually follow story structures. One of the things I love doing is working with the kids and teach them how to be better writers. We start off with simple stories like the pig storylines in The Three Little Pigs. They have a problem, they go on a journey and they meet some friends or helpers, they overcome an enemy or hindrance and come to a happy ending. Well, that basic structure is exactly the same structure they're going to use when they come to write an academic essay. They have a problem. Yeah. That problem is something they need to establish or argue. The pro and the problem is that not everyone agrees. So they go on a journey. They gather their evidence. They do interviews. They do experiments. Those are their friends or helpers. They then look at the enemies or hindrances, the points pro, the skeptics, the people who have different opinions. And as a result, they evaluate both sides of the argument and come to a conclusion, hopefully defeating those people who don't have as good arguments to support their points of view as the person writing the essay. Yeah.
not knowing that the patterns are the same means that you're not coming to an essay and learning a totally new way of writing. You're recognizing that you already know this. You, your characters are just slightly different. That's it. Yeah. And, and is it in any way helpful to be, um, putting that more into the, like uh, the context of storytelling rather than project or work you think like on a psychological level is uh, maybe adds a bit more of a, a playful creative element to to that kind of work as well absolutely and i think play is very important particularly we, we can get too too serious but stories can be both uplifting and they can be tragic and the tragic and the comic are structure neutral any story can have a tragic ending or have a positive ending. And one of the ways of going away from the tragic and towards the positive is to see things for what they are, not be tricked, not um, be hoodwinked, because tragic heroes generally want to avoid something, but they have this fatal flaw, they can't see clearly, and they end up doing whatever it was they were trying to avoid, but they couldn't help it. Yeah. When we spoke a while back, we spoke a little about, uh, you mentioned the story of Cinderella and, uh, and that there's uh, a really way to, to see it as a, well, you're describing what makes it, what makes it the story of Cinderella. And I think that was helpful to me in understanding what you were uh, talking about, how you described that. Can you go into that a little more for us? Sure. That was one of the, in inciting incidents, if you like, that set me out on this journey of discovery. I read a book called Cambridge Introduction to Narrative because I was interested in storytelling and I work with storytellers and I tell stories myself. And in it, the author said, what makes the story of Cinderella, the story of Cinderella is probably something we'll never be able to determine with precision. And I thought, how do you know? Why not? And there's nothing I like better than to grab hold of a question we don't have a satisfactory answer to and see where that leads me. There are things that people have identified. People have identified over a thousand, maybe 1500 versions of the Cinderella story. They either have dresses and a ball. They have a stepmother and stepsisters. They have a mother who dies, who comes in as a magical supernatural helper or a fairy godmother figure. But some of the earliest ones go back to ancient Egypt, where there's the slipper that's lost, and then the prince has to go on a quest to find the lost bride, the lost love. And there's always been some kind of a, a glitch in the argument. There's always an exception. But what I've found is that the thing that makes the story of Cinderella, Cinder the story of Cinderella, is generally that it starts positive. Most stories start with a problem. Carrot has a problem. As a result, they go on a journey and they have adventures. The story of Cinderella starts positive. In the classic versions of the story, there's a happy family. Everything is going well. Cinderella is destined to be presented at court. She's going to be married into a good family. The father's a merchant, but then the mother dies. There's this 
negative event that comes out of the blue unexpectedly. They try to put it right. It doesn't work. Things get worse. As a result, there's an intervention. An intervention from some kind of supernatural level or metaphysical level. In folk tales or wonder tales, it will be the fairy godmother or the spirit of the mother. But when it comes to applying it to our own lives, what makes the difference to us is the spirit of wisdom in us. Those insightful moments where we hear this inner voice and we can't accept it uncritically, but it's those deep down instincts, those higher faculties that have to come together to guide us. And when they do, and we find that they're leading us in the positive direction, a direction towards truth, towards harmony, towards goodness, then we can help ourselves out of that morass. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting. I don't think I'd ever have thought of applying stories uh, contextually like that to, to those sorts of life situations. But, you know, uh, stories come from life and life comes from stories. What I find particularly fascinating, though, is that my show is primarily about influence and persuasion. And this is one of the reasons why storytelling is so important, because it's a hugely persuasive tool to have, probably the most persuasive tool, really, that people have. And I know that there is, from what you told me before, there's some crossover between storytelling and rhetoric, which I think would be really interesting to hear more about. Yeah. One of the things that struck me when I was looking at the way stories work is the link between comedy and similes. If I said, that man's a snake, it's not funny. You're on the alert. You've been warned, untrustworthy, probably lurking in the grass, ready to bite you if you get too close. But if I said, man's gone to the cinema, sits down, sees a snake beside him, he said, why are you here? And the snake says, I read the book, thought I'd come to see the film. Right. That is much more likely to make people laugh because. The snake is behaving like a human being. And that's funny. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so these deep patterns of relationship that structures in rhetoric like similes also underpin how stories work, not just in terms of content or structure, but on a very, very deep level in terms of how we react to them. Comedy is based on simile. Yeah. How, how then can we utilize that in our own, maybe, influence and, and persuasion from presenting, speaking, writing, etc.? How, how can we utilize the sort of influence of stories, do you think? Well, I think one of the key differentiators between people who are really successful at using language and story and rhetoric for the purposes of persuasion and influence are the people who work within language, who use language as a living tool, rather than just take tools in the toolbox, 
and apply them willy-nilly. We've seen that with the Monomyth, Campbell's Hero's Journey. It's been applied formulaically to so many Bollywood scripts that people are getting tired of it. For me, Bollywood is much more interesting because the storyline is more complex and more varied. And uh, I find it more morally interesting. Uh, there are always e interesting ethical dilemmas there. In terms of advertising, very often advertisers will use a, a story structure which traditionally has been associated with divine intervention. So in Ovid's Metamorphoses, there are gods that intervene. And if a character is being chased by a particularly rapacious god, they will come in and change the poor uh, person who's fleeing from the god's advances to a bird, a tree, a river, whatever. And that transformation happens as a result of a cry for help. There's, they sense a transgression against the natural order and intervene immediately. There's no thought. They don't go through a quest structure. They don't think, hmm, yeah, that's a cry for help. What should I do? Should I change them to a peacock? Should I change them to an owl? Should I change? Well, maybe, no, owls are Thursday. Today's Tuesday. Maybe I should. Ah, yes, that's what I'll do. And then they do it. No, it's just instantaneous. Boom. And that structure is traditionally, as I say, associated with divine figures. That very, very powerful power. Advertisers use it to sell stuff. You are committing a crime against the natural order by not buying this product. If you do, you will be transformed. You will be successful in your quest to look handsome, look beautiful, keep up with the Joneses, whatever. That underlying message comes into so many adverts and people buy into it because it has this power. But we don't have to be sucked into it. And to avoid people buying it and then being disappointed, one needs to think about the longer term, the customer retention. And that comes with being more authentic, following a quest structure rather than transformation structure, putting in the, the big bad wolves, the negatives, yeah? And dealing with them face to face. Yeah. You, you mentioned that there's a lot of different types of story. And, and I'm wondering, is it useful, do you think then to, to know what those different types of story are? Because you know, it's someone like, uh, I don't know if you come across someone like Donald Miller, who has the story brand thing, but he, he talks about uh, essentially who you are, especially in business is, is part of your story. And, uh, and that, you know, we're always telling a story about who we are or, or what our business is and what we're about, and we should be cognizant of that. Is it, and I think that ties in a little to what you're saying there in terms of using story and advertising is like, that is part of what, how you advertise yourself and your business. Is it worth knowing different types of stories and telling some different kinds of stories to, to really stand out? Because as you say there, if it's the same stories we've seen before, people are bored of that. Yes, and I think um, stories need to fulfill a purpose. My observation in terms of how stories are used in different cultures is that in America, there's a tendency to favor the personal anecdote. 
to share something personal, particularly if it's heart on the sleeve, makes you feel vulnerable, gives you credibility. And then that is generally used to open a business presentation, sets up the uh, credibility of the speaker and introduces them as an authority on the topic, somebody to be trusted. In other cultures, Eastern cultures in particular, stories are used rather like fables or um, parables to illustrate a point without hammering it home directly. In Western culture, uh, in Western European culture, stories are used much more subtly, I think, and that's my tradition. And I use story structure to match the story structure more closely to a particular type of problem a person is facing. So if I'm working within industry, I have a series of questions I ask that will identify the type of problem, the challenges facing the speaker, presenter, team, and we'll be able to identify key elements that they need to focus on in order to formulate a storyline that will lead them to their desired goal. So it is important. Not all stories are the same. Story, stuffers, story structures differ for a reason. And some were, will be really good to use if there's doubt or skepticism. Others will be really good to use if there's a problem that is easy to solve, but just needs a little work and a little bit of help from your friends. Being able to identify those differences comes out of understanding the different types of stories that are part of our way of thinking as humans. They don't come out of nowhere, Johnny, do they? <laughs> no, of course. Uh, and maybe that's some of the power of them as well, is that some, they, they've been around a lot longer than we have and, and they're steeped into our consciousness and we're not necessarily aware of exactly what they are. We just know they're there and, and we're familiar with them. But I, I was curious, I mean, it seems that you're saying that story structure can also be used as a problem-solving mechanism which is enlightening in itself to think about that. Uh, and so how, how, do we, how do we really learn this? Or what, what kind of way are we going to learn and understand story structures that we can actually use them in, in those sorts of ways? Well, the good news is that I have a book coming out later this year called The Unknown Storyteller or What Makes Story Story, in which I outline the methodology. I outline all of the 18 story structures I've identified, show people how it works, and look at how um, it works in relation to comedy, what makes tragedy tragic, and the fact that poems and poetic forms follow story structures. Nobody's done this before. Nobody's shown the relationship between the actual form of a sonnet or a limerick and shown that it can be related to a particular type of story. So look out for that, the unknown storyteller. I'm present on Facebook, on Medium, on Substack, I'm around, and people can engage with videos about it on YouTube. There's a lot to find out. I've run courses. Yeah, I, 
I'd be looking forward to that myself. And, and certainly once your book's out, I will go delve back into the show notes and update them so that people will, will have the link to that. But in the meantime, we can come and follow you on, on some other channels whilst we learn more about it. But can you give us some more examples of the kinds of structures that you talk about in your book or will be talking about? Sure. Let me give you the example of the three little pigs. It is one I love coming back to because it is simple, but it is rich and it goes deep. There's a reason why we all tend to be told it and gravitate towards it as kids, because on the surface, it's easy, it's memorable, but down in the depths, there's a lot going on. Let's take the storyline of the wolf. And this will give you an insight into how I approach a story. I separate character storylines. The wolf wakes up one morning and is hungry. He is after some delicious food and he knows that in the neighborhood are some rather silly, innocent and very tasty pigs. Now he goes out and he tracks down the first, who has built himself a very secure, so he thinks, house made of straw. Wolf rolls up at the front door and he thinks, this is too easy. I could blow it down in a jiffy, but no, I'm going to pretend to be a friend. Little pig, little pig, let me come in. But the pig isn't having any of it. He says, no, no, not by the hair on my little chin chin, I'll not let you in. And that doesn't sit well with the wolf. So he thought he would trick the pig, but he's been tricked himself. So he goes on a little quest and his friends and helpers are his power of puff and his brute strength and his bullying tactics. And he blows the house down. Well, he thinks he will get a nice mouthful of pig, but he's so puffed out but before he can recover his breath, little pig has run off on his little trotters as fast as they can carry him to second little pig's house. And the wolf is chasing after. He doesn't manage to catch the pig. He's been tricked again. And that repeats. It loops until he gets to the brick house. In the brick house, he thinks, I'm not going to be fooled or stopped by a brick house. I've had straw, I've had twigs. And this one, they built it wrong. They put a hole up in the chimney. Did they think I wouldn't get in that way? Oh, ho, ho. Little does he know that it's not he who's going to trick the pigs by finding a way in when they don't want him in there, but he's going to be tricked by them. All through the story of the three little pigs in the wolf storyline, there are these trickster moves. And the trickster move is a really interesting one because it comes in different guises. First of all, there's a friend who pretends to be a friend, but is actually an enemy. And if you have a character like that in a story, what usually happens 99% of the time, if not 100, is that somebody is duped and they find out they've been duped. They want revenge. So they turn the tables and the trickster gets tricked. It happens in Br'er Rabbit stories. It happens in Tom and Jerry cartoons. 
And it feels very satisfying until you re realize that nothing has changed. You've just rewound, reset, the status quo remains the same. One person is out to get the other, one person is out not to be tricked, and nothing changes. So realizing that there is this trickster structure, realizing that it doesn't lead to a positive harmonious outcome, means that you can look at story structures and say, well, I don't want to get caught into this trickster loop. I want to snap out of it. So what do I do? And that's one of the things that learning about story structure can help with. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. And it's certainly a way that I never thought about it before in terms of uh, looking at things from each of the characters' journeys in, in the stories. And I, I just wonder from, from a level of archetypal characters, is those archetypes important uh, to these story structures that you talk about? They are, but my approach is different to Jung's, for instance, who talked about character archetypes. For me, the story structures themselves are archetypical. They embody certain qualities. And what I find fascinating is that within the initial problem a character has is a seed of the unfolding of a solution. And that is what I find absolutely fascinating. And you see that in terms of how stories open up and develop and expand very often, like a yin-yang thing, where something negative occurs, there's often within that negative event, the seed of a positive. Yeah. But is, is always a logical process or is it sometimes, does it sometimes roll off that? into something well, less logical. Story structure for me has an internal logic, but it's not the kind of logic that you use to check the veracity or strength of your thinking, correctness of your thinking. It's an internal logic that dictates a particular kind of flow. This kind of logic that a rose has or a flower has when it grows, it flows into a particular form that is part of it. But there are always differences. If you compare to daffodils or to apples, they'll never be exactly the same, but they will conform to the same kind of symmetric model. In that sense, yes, there is a logic to story, but there's also a wonderful, indefinite amount of variety. Well, around the time that we're talking, there's a lot of interesting international events going on, uh, particularly uh, around Russia and Ukraine right now. Do it, does any of that fit into sort of, or could be applied to the, some of the story structures that you talk about? I think there are a lot of trickster structure stories going on, false news, um, propaganda, lies, and desperation in terms of people who are finding themselves in a situation they do not want to be in on both sides. And uh, my heart goes out to them, really. And story structure can only help to a certain point, just as in rhetoric. Rhetoric and the tools help to a certain point. And then people Longinus, like Longinus have said, that is when the sublime takes over. 
that is when you have to give over to a higher power and flow, hopefully, towards greater truth, greater harmony, greater goodness. What, what do you think are going to be the, aside from the problem-solving things that we talked about and just understanding some of these principles, what do you think are going to be the greater benefits for people to, to learn these story structures and, their, and the information that you'll be teaching in your book? So, number one, clearer thinking. Number two, being able to differentiate between the different kinds of problems we face as human beings and being able to say, right, this is a problem I can deal with. This is a problem I can't deal with easily by myself. And I know where to get help for. And the importance of acknowledging those internal qualities we have within us, like in wisdom, like insight, like the, the unknown power, the ineffable, but is part of the stories. It happens, it manifests in two ways as fairy godmothers and supernatural positive powers, but it also manifests as demons and monsters. And one of the things to be aware of that, again, comes out of this work in, on story structure is that monsters usually emerge in stories out of an excess of good. So let's take the story of Beowulf, for instance. Why does Grendel, that huge monster who creates such havoc in the Mead Hall, appear in the first place? It's because that Mead Hall was envisaged as the biggest, the best, the greatest, the tallest, the most wonderful one around. And it was built as if it was the Tower of Babel, stretching up to the highest heavens even. It was too good for its own good. And similarly, a state of dire horror typically brings forth that power, positive power of transformation of salvation. When Baha'u'llah was in the deepest, darkest, most terrible place on earth, the uh, in Tehran, the deep pit of Tehran, he was in prison, it was dank, it was smelly, it was awful. That was where he was visited by an angel who gave him his spiritual vision and he was able to move forward. I, I wonder from, from your perspective and uh, whether these story structures are, even if we don't realize it, always at play, like we're always kind of living out story structures because, because they're so ingrained and because they're so so much a part of our cultural heritage and, and human heritage really as well. Do you think that they're always a work? Like we're probably always going to be living by some kind of story structure. Yes, I think they're fundamental to the way we live, to the way we process information, just as language is based on, well, let's take the work of George Lakoff on metaphor. He argues that there are two types of metaphor we use and all the metaphors we use can be distilled condensed down to these two major types. There's the containment metaphor, things that can be put in a container and pointed to, they're fixed, like falling in love. Love is a contained space and you're inside it. Everything outside is different. Your experience is shielded, it's cocooned. It's very different from 
what you would normally experience if you weren't in love. Then there's the continuum. He doesn't use this term, but he, he does refer to it as a moving idea. So let's move that meeting back a few hours, or our marriage has hit the rocks. So the relationship is a journey, or time is a, move, a moment on a moving line. I wonder then, are all story structures potentially persuasive, or are some perhaps more practicable than others? That's a good question. Are they all persuasive? Well, I think it depends on who's telling them and why. If we look at then, that mean that primarily the, the audience of this show are like speakers, coaches, people who are um, likely to be doing some sort of presentation, maybe on a podcast, but maybe in courses, trainings, uh, and other public arenas. What kind of story structures would you advise someone in that kind of role to be utilizing the most? That sense of something being fixed or something moving is essential, not just to metaphor and the way we um, put things metaphorically, but it's also essential to the basic structure of language. We have nouns and words that fit with them. We have verbs and words that fit in them. And in any language, whatever your grammatical uh, rules are, you will always have a distinction between something that stays the same and something that changes over the time. Story is no different. You have a character at the beginning of a story and at the end of the story, and story unfolds in that space between. And that's where the changes occur that get them from the initial state to the final state. Again, I would counsel against trying to fit a one-size-fits-all approach into doing anything like that. And it's been applied in business. You've got to have this kind of thing. You've got to have a, an outline, a problem, how clients have used the thing, how they benefit and how it could have been benefited you. Well, that's one type of story that is very similar to the way people are taught to build a five-paragraph essay in college. And it doesn't work because it leaves out the skeptics. It leaves out the wolf. It leaves out the arguments against. As soon as you put them in, you have a much more compelling story. If your goal is to persuade people to take up a particular action, to buy a particular product, to find out more information. On the other hand, if you want to convince people of a course of action and they are deep in either a situation of denial or a situation where they're facing a problem that is the result of a previous problem and a previous solution that hasn't worked, that story structure isn't going to be the most effective. There are other stories or other story structures that will be. Similarly, in the practice of narrative therapy, there have been story structures, the quest structure, for instance, this three little pigs storyline structure has been used to help very successfully trauma survivors and post-traumatic stress sort of treating that. But taking that story structure and applying it across different people's needs, 
people's different needs doesn't mean that it will work because their problems will be different. They need a different type of story structure. So mm. there isn't, there, once you are familiar with the 18 story structures, it becomes easy. But there isn't a way I can make it easy and <laughs> cover a whole book in however long we have. But the, the, the answers are there and they are easy to engage with. I've made them as easy as I can. And they're fun. Yeah. But there's a uh, the particular kind of person that I, I have a lot of respect for, admiration for, I guess, uh, and the, I, I would, that I strive to be more like, and that is some the people who are effortless raconteurs, the, the storytellers who can just really transfix you with their stories and, and they're known for their stories as well. And I think the, in my awareness, there's only a handful of people I can think of who are exceptionally good at that. They're just like, when they start speaking, you, you just want to listen and you just want to hear their stories. The story structures that you teach, is that something that, that will help people to do? Because I think it can be captivating when you can really tell a story like that to, to be a bit more of a, an intriguing storyteller with those structures. Is that potentially the case? Absolutely. It will help pe tired parents coming home after a day's work and not wanting to read a story, even though the kid might want nothing wrong with books. Books are great. Picture books are great. But telling a story spontaneously and having the kid say, oh, what happens next? Well, I'll tell you next night. And not worrying about what happens next is a great gift, is a great thing to be able to do. And if you know a story structure, if you know, right, I have to hit these points and know that it doesn't really matter about the content. You could have a story about a pink banana if you wanted. You could have a story about a guy called Alex who's facing a real problem because he just doesn't have a clown nose. Yeah. And the story will flow. If you are a guy who is, or a woman who is in business and wants to appear engaging, well, you don't want to really follow a script verbatim. You want to engage with the audience. If you have a structure that is clear to you and you can dance around that structure, improvise, spend more time in one section, less time in one in another, when you come to speak in front of an audience, that will give you more freedom. That will make you much more appealing and much more, it will make an audience much more empathetic to you. Mm. It's a real skill to have. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Are, are there any particular names that stand out to you as modern, great modern storytellers? Great traditional storytellers, I'd say. Yes, there is. I study with one, Shona Lee Cumbers, who is a rare person. She is the only person, as far as I'm aware, who is survived and was lucky enough to be handed a family tradition by her grandmother in a tradition that goes back generations of women in Jewish culture. Normally it skips a generation, so grandmother to granddaughter. And she not only has a whole world of around 4,000 stories, possibly more, within her that she can call up at, at will, but also the techniques. She was taught traditionally to learn them. It's incredibly rare. 
And I've been fortunate enough to be studying with her for a number of years now. And she is worth hearing. Because when she tells a story, she could start anywhere in any one of those 4,000 stories. And she gets to a point and she might say, well, he went down the road and he passed a ruby tree that was planted by the road. But why it was planted and when it was planted is another story. And she would leave it open for the audience. And they could say, we'd like to hear that story. So she'd branch off into that. And you may never get back to the beginning of the story you started with because you're so far down in the lattice that you're still telling stories. And she can go about seven layers deep and still find her way back if necessary. Uh, these stories take days to tell. Wow. That, that is an, an, impressive, uh, an impressive talent to, for somebody to have as well. Now, I'm very much, I'll very much be looking forward to your book coming out. Just remind us again what the title of that is going to be. The title is The Unknown Storyteller. What makes story, story. Great. And in the meantime, you can come and check her out on social media. All those links are going to be in the show notes for people to come and find out. And I know it's going to be fascinating. I know we've probably barely scratched the surface. So there's a lot of things uh, we could talk about here in addition to this, but it's been fascinating. And uh, so I wonder for you, what, uh, what additional books or resources might you recommend maybe relating to this topic or books that you think that this audience would really appreciate? Well, the one book that springs to mind is the book that I studied with George Spencer Brown. It's called Laws of Form. This is the book that catapulted him to fame, and it's become a cult classic. It's never been out of print since it was first printed in 1969. For some, it's easy. For, for others, it's difficult. And he said, well, this was the male counterpart to the female book I wrote, which was only two can play this game. And if you find laws of form difficult, I've got a series of videos on YouTube taking people through a close reading of it if they want to get into the uh, background more deeply. But only two can play this game is a wonderful book. It's full of poetry, of stories, of funny anecdotes that highlight exactly the same kind of thinking he was elaborating in making evident the patterns we use in thinking in Laws of Form, but in a totally different way. So those are the two books I would recommend people engage with. They're well worth reading. Fantastic. We'll definitely check them out. And good to know that there's some additional resources as well to help us to, to understand and absorb them. And one thing I, I would like to find out from you is when it comes to influence and persuasion, what is your greatest superpower? What are you best at when it comes to influence and persuading? Well, for me, an integrated act of communication in which thought, word, and deed come together to support a message that is grounded on a really noble stance, a stance that is founded on universal principles of truth, goodness, and harmony. Harmony, not just between people, but between every living and non-living thing on the planet in the universe. If we can base ourselves on that foundational starting point, then we can espouse a message that is worth 
putting out there. And if it's worth putting out there, it's worth getting our thoughts, our words, and our needs to come together to support that. If we can do that, I think anyone can persuade anyone of anything that fits that model. Yeah, we hope we see more and more of that appearing in, in the world as well. It certainly, uh, certainly speaks to a much brighter future if we can. And let, let me uh, let me wrap things up then by by just asking you what is you say there's a few channels again. What's the best social media channel? Is it would you say it's your YouTube or your are you on any other social media platforms that you would like people to connect with you on? Well, I am very active on YouTube. I'm also active on Substack and a little bit on Facebook. I go there, but fantastic. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. And, and I, I feel like there's sort of so many wires firing in brain, so many uh, things that are thinking, oh, wow, I want to go and check that out. I want to find out more about that. That sounds really fascinating. So you definitely lit a spark here to, to start a fire and, uh, and hope for other people listening as well. So Leon, comrade, thank, thank you so much for coming and being a guest and speaking influence. Johnny Ball, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. I really hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you did, and you would like to express your gratitude in some small way, please share the show out with your friends and network and consider that the price of this great information from people like Leon Conrad. Now, I also hope that you will put whatever you've learned from the show into practice in your life and your business and let me know how you've done that. And I'm sure Leon would love to hear from you too. Next week, my guest is going to be Stevie Dawn Carter, and we are going to be having a great conversation again in the area of communication skills. And you're going to love it. She's a great guest as well. Now, Speaking Influence is not going to be around for that much longer. It's going to be relaunching. And when it does, there's going to be a stronger focus on the world of podcasting. But I hope that you will stay with me for that because we'll still be touching on most of the same kinds of issues with a stronger focus on how they apply to the world of podcasting. And if you are in business and you're not already using podcasts as a guest, as a host, or in some way, shape or form, then it's time to get on board with that because you are missing a trick. And certainly we are going to be giving you on this show, possibly one of the only shows that we're doing this, the best ways to engage, to captivate, to raise your charisma stakes and be a great podcast guest and host for whatever is going to serve your business interests the best. And of course, that is going to spill out into other parts of your life and your professional presentation skills too. So make sure you stay subscribed. I think we might be one of the only shows that is going to be doing that. And I will keep you posted. It's probably going to be happening around July. There's going to be some fanfare around it. You'll get to hear about it, but make sure you're subscribed to the show. It's going to stay on the same feed. So you'll already be subscribed. And I hope that you'll stay with us through this transition. But for now, thanks for tuning into today's show. And I hope it has been valuable for you. Wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, have an amazing rest of your day. And I'll see you again for another episode of Speaking Influence very soon.